Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Hello to everybody listening live. The Evil Army of the Night, we love when you call us. Hello to everybody listening on the John Fugelsang Podcast or SiriusXM On Demand or the SiriusXM app. We love you guys. We love getting your letters. We love getting your emails and your DMs. We even love uh, occasionally getting your threatening letters, which I've been told I'm not supposed to talk about. But let me tell you, we get all of it. We get all of it. This stuff they won't let me talk about. But we, we attract all types. We attract really wonderful people who care about life and we get the other kinds too and uh i should be more scared of evil people but you know what there's too many good people so let's get to it now last week we could say that there's a lot of good things happening i mean last week congress approved the chips act by a very wide margin that's going to increase semiconductor production it's going to make us more competitive with china this was also right after joe biden signed the first real major gun safety law in like three decades it wasn't as much as we hoped for but it was something This was also last week, 47 Republicans came over to join House Democrats to pass the Respect for Marriage Act because Clarence Thomas said the quiet part out loud and said they want to uh, end the federal right to same sex marriage, which um, also protects interracial marriage and safeguards against other kinds of discrimination. So you'd think, okay, well, this week, what's this week going to hold? And I'm not going to lie. There was rough stuff this week watching Brittany Griner get nine years for one gram of cannabis oil because she's a bargaining chip for an evil dictator. But let me just show you how far the year has come. We're not even to the fall yet. It's the first week of August, brothers and sisters. And all we hear about is Joe Biden and his low polling numbers and how bad things are for the Democrats. This week began with word that a drone strike had killed the longtime leader of Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, which was huge. Joe Biden was deeply involved in the decision to launch this precision drone strike that led to the death. There were no bystanders killed, which I'll say is a remarkable feat if you've read as much about these drone attacks as I have. Uh, no civilian deaths whatsoever. So started off pretty well. I mean, Donald Trump got COVID and he drove around in a buggy and endangered the lives of Secret Service agents and climbed some stairs with a heavy sweat. Joe Biden got COVID and he killed the head of Al-Qaeda. Joe Biden killed the head of Al-Qaeda. Barack Obama killed uh, Osama bin Laden. And Donald Trump released 5,000 Taliban from prison. You get where I'm going with this. But that was just the beginning of the week. By the middle of the week, 
we had seen this amazing vote in Kansas against a ballot measure that would have allowed Republican lawmakers to ban abortion in the state. Huge. 18%. It wasn't even close. In a deep red state, and they did everything they could to make people not show up to vote. And people showed up. Conservative people showed up. It was a real shot in the arm for demoralized people after the Donald Trump Supreme Court gutted Roe v. Wade. Then we found out, whoa, Merrick Garland, he's on the job. He's going to prosecute the four cops that walked in Kentucky for the murder of Breonna Taylor. And then we found out that Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer, while the rest of us were just, you know, watching Netflix and chilling all summer, they brought back Build Back Better. And not as limp back later, which I thought it was going to be, but the Inflation Recovery Act, or IRA. And it's really impressive. It is a climate, health care, and tax proposal. And the one question mark was, what will President Kirsten Sinema do? This morning we found out she will support it. She got what she wanted. So by week's end, Sinema was on board. Now, by any measure, this would be a pretty decent week compared to the year we've had. But then we found out The economy added 528,000 jobs in July. These numbers were way past all expectations. The biggest leap since February, double what economists expected. The unemployment rate ticked down to 3.5%. That's the pre-pandemic level. That is the lowest unemployment rate in nearly half a century. Yes, we hear a lot about the layoffs, but the numbers show that most U.S. businesses still have a strong demand for workers, which you don't see during the R-word recession. Here's Joe Biden earlier today talking about the strong jobs report, applauding the economic recovery from 2020's pandemic depths. Today, we received another outstanding jobs report. 528,000 jobs were added just last month to this country's employment. 528,000 jobs. We have now nearly doubled what we, we're almost at 10 million jobs. Almost a 10 million jobs since I took office. That's the fastest job growth in history. Today, we also matched the lowest unemployment rate in America in the last 50 years, 3.5%. Yes, 3.5%. Today, there are more people working in America than before the pandemic began. In fact, there are more people working in America than any point in American history. He ain't lying. And again, Kirsten Sinema has come on board and they they gave her some opportunity to make some changes because she is the president this week, uh, adding a one percent excise tax on stock buybacks. That's going to actually bring in a lot of revenue to help lower the deficit and the language narrowing the tax break on carried interest is out of the bill because she's owned by rich people. We have a culture based on bribery. So we expected that to happen. Uh, you know, paring back parts of the 15% minimum tax on large, profitable corporations that ripped us all off, but $5 billion in drought resiliency investments. These changes that Cinema agreed to are going to increase the bill's original $300 billion deficit reduction figure. It's moving forward. And you want a sign that it's going to be good for non-millionaires? Lindsey Graham is furious. Here it is. This is uh, Lady G livid that this reconciliation bill is likely to pass and he's promising to roadblock anything that can't be included. So what will uh, Votorama be like? It'll be like hell. They deserve this. As much as I admire Joe Manchin and Cinema for standing up to the radical left at times, they're empowering 
legislation that will make the average person's life more difficult at a time they can't afford higher gas taxes, they're going to get it. At a time we create jobs, it's going to be harder because the incentives to do so are gone. So I'm hoping that we can come up with um, proposals that will make sense to a few of them, <laughs> and they will abandon this jihad their own oh. to tax and spend. Uh. But I just turn it over to John now, but to Joe Manchin, you have a game plan <laughs> that counts on something you need to really think long and hard about. Remember, every Republican that talks about tax and spend Democrats is a borrow from your grandkids and spend Republican. Don't ever forget that. Now, look, the country at this point, by middle of the summer, has made up the entirety of jobs that were lost when the pandemic hit in 2020. And this new unemployment rate of 3.5% beats every month since that recession. It's the lowest unemployment in half a century. Joe Biden's first year of office was the biggest year of job creation ever recorded in our country's history. I mean, it's good news for workers. It makes the recession look a bit more remote. And all these positive, I mean, reconciliation, the chip plan, gas prices have gone down for 30 odd days in a row. Joe Biden took a victory lap on this this morning. He said, it's the result of my economic plan to build the economy from the bottom up and middle out. I ran for president to rebuild the middle class. There's more work to do. But today's job report shows we're making significant progress for our working families. Meanwhile, what are the Republicans doing for working families? What are the Republicans? What have the Republicans done for working families in the last 50 since Nixon, since Nixon and the earned income tax credit? What have Republicans done? When have they put working families first? You know what they've done? I'll tell you what Republicans are good at. They're good at pretending to be Christian. Here at CPAC, Marjorie Taylor Greene proudly embraces the Christian nationalist mantle, not realizing that's exactly what our friend Adolf Hitler was into. But when I said that I'm a Christian nationalist, I have nothing to be ashamed of because that's what most Americans are. We're proud of our faith. But when I said that um, I'm a Christian nationalist, I have nothing. Oh, sorry. So, you know what happened? Someone pulled the cord in the back of her neck and it got stuck. And she kept repeating that expression over and over. Recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. Look, Marge, Jesus doesn't recognize borders. Jesus and God don't like America or Christians more than other people. Now, here's the deal. Monmouth released a poll this week. American voters top concern. After economic policy, which the Democrats have been going at with gusto, was abortion at 17% and gun control at 17%. And we saw the right wing really expecting conservative Kansas voters to outlaw abortion in this heavily Republican-dominated state. But turnout was so enormous. The majority of Americans in the 21st century recognize women as humans who deserve autonomy over their own bodies. And Trump, well, <laughs> let's talk about the party of Trump and what they've done for women, for families, for working people. Donald Trump cost his party the House, the White House, and the Senate in one presidential term with two impeachments. And now his riot at the end of his administration has ensnared at least half a dozen RNC members who could face prison time for their roles in the scheme. This is only going to get bigger. And today, Today at CPAC, they showed how desperate it is. They had a panel called Rise of the American Gulag. 
And uh, Kash Patel and Brandon Straka were just going hard on Andy Biggs, who was also on the panel, because they were saying Andy Biggs was not doing enough to help the terrorists from January 6th. And the crowd started booing Andy Biggs for not doing enough to help the people who attacked your capital to throw out the election. So Andy Biggs panicked. And you got to hear this. Uh, he got so scared, he started calling for the FBI to be defunded. Defund the FBI. And the CPAC audience that was heckling him a minute later was applauding him because they are monkeys. Give a listen. This is Andy Biggs at CPAC daydreaming about ways to defund and de-staff the DOJ and the FBI. He's saying this because they were just booing him. Back of the government. And we don't have control of the government right now. We sit there, I'm in a minority of the minority. We have to get the House back, we have to get the Senate back. And then we have to bring them in, and we have to, there are things you can do. You can do the Holman Rule. You, and that's what you do is you, you start defunding some of these bad agencies. Mm -hmm. The FBI. Defund the yeah. police. The DOJ. Defund the police. You use the Holman rule to defund people who have abused their power. You bring impeachment articles against the judges who have violated <laughs> defund the law enforcement rights in the federal statutes. On, for instance, on pretrial detention. I'm like Cash. I've gone through a lot of these files. I don't see any basis for for pretrial detention. So you get the idea, right? He was terrified. And that's what the Republicans are doing. They're saying, hey, let's make things work better by defunding the Department of Justice so they can't put these guys in jail. I mean, and then here's Rick Scott, again, the man behind the greatest Medicaid fraud in history. Senator Rick Scott, you know what he's doing to help people? Stoking more fear and hatred of the political left. I warn you, you might want to sit down because this is so bad shit, it could cause dizziness. Everyone will obey and no one will be allowed to complain. If you do speak up, boom, you're going to be canceled. Hmm. Your views, if you don't conform with Big Tech, Fauci, or Neil Young, can be taken off Spotify, YouTube, no, Facebook, and Twitter. What happened? Neil Young left Spotify. What? The militant left in America are the modern day version of book burners. Militant is left is against militancy. And you're the one banning books. Canceling, silence, and banning from the internet is book burning. What? These are what? the most narrow-minded, intolerant people our country has ever seen. They are completely ignorant of both world history and American history. Socialism leads to two things. What? Poverty and oppression. What? In what, in what society? In which of our capitalist Socialism is not a new idea. It's one of the dumbest, oldest, most discredited ideas of the 20th century that resulted in the deaths of 100 million people. Socialism pays his salary. If these Democrats who have no idea how the real world works are acting like they just invented socialism. Okay, I think that's, that's the good enough. Now, here's the deal. Rick Scott is someone who made his fortune ripping off $1.7 from Medicare as a hospital network CEO. He is a crook. And listen, I'm all for giving criminals a second chance, but... Florida, the governor's office and a Senate, a little much. But please remember, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, which is led by Rick Scott, put out a document earlier this year about their plan to use obscenity laws to do what? To ban books. 
exactly what he's accusing the other guy of doing, responsible for the biggest Medicare fraud scheme in U.S. history. Now, (laughs) that's what Republicans are doing. It's getting white people angry. That's all they have to offer. Umbrage. That's it. Democrats are offering solutions. Democrats, and I will criticize Democrats all day, and this package doesn't go nearly far enough. I'll, t- I'll say it all day long. But the Democrats are fighting for working people. The Senate's not in session today, but it's going to reconvene Saturday. In midday, the votes will start kicking off at 12.30 p.m. on a motion to discharge the nomination. Later on Saturday, there'll be a vote on the motion to proceed to the climate tax and health care bill. And... um By the way, let me just get Joe Biden in here one more time, because along with the jobs and the recovery, Biden here is talking about a rebirth of American manufacturing. Since I took office, we've created 642,000 American manufacturing jobs in America. We've seen the biggest and the fastest job recovery in American manufacturing history since the 50s. And some people may have given up on American manufacturing, but the American people didn't. And I know I never did. That's why I made it, make it in America, that phrase, make it in America, the cornerstone of my economic plan. And today's report proves make it in America isn't just a slogan. It's my administration. It's a reality. And he's right. Donald Trump ran against outsourcing, and then he gave gigantic tax breaks to every corporation that outsourced American jobs. Look, these are the choices, okay? You have Democrats that are actually working to help the economy, working for working families, for education, for student loan debt, for health care, for the environment, for climate change. And what are Republicans doing? They're attacking freedom. They're banning books. They're punishing teachers. They're punishing businesses. They're trying to suppress the vote everywhere they can. They're having terrorist attacks on our capital. They are ending women's rights to have body autonomy. They're taking away Americans' freedom in some states to elect the president they want. They're pushing the big lie. They love AR-15s more than they love children. They hate science. They hate books. They hate voting. They're fighting for speech restrictions. They're trying to criminalize doctors. They're going to try to criminalize contraceptives, folks. When they go low, step on them. We're going to be joined later in the show by Judge LaDoris Hazard Cordell, who is a legal commentator and police reform advocate, who is also well known as being the first African-American woman to be a judge in North California. Her memoir is called Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. Written by a judge. It's a fantastic book with insight into abortion, gun laws, January 6th. Police Misconduct, it's an amazing memoir. So we got a great show planned for you guys tonight. And by the way, if you need one more bit of good news, they're going to make Alex Jones pay $41 million for the lies he told about Newtown. I'm not saying unclench completely, but guys, keep the pressure on. Something's moving. Something's shifting. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I am so pleased to welcome our next guest. I've been really looking forward to this. Judge Ladoris Hazard Cordell is a legal commentator and police reform advocate who you've probably seen on NPR, CNN, MSNBC. She's a graduate of Stanford Law, and she was famous as the first African-American woman judge in Northern California, appointed by Jerry Brown, a position she held from 82 to 2001. She was also assistant dean of Stanford Law School, where she implemented a highly successful minority admissions program. Her public service record spans many years, and she's overseen commissions that investigated violence and mental health care and the jail system, accounts of racism in the San Francisco Police Department, juvenile delinquency, the shift from rehabilitation to punishment is something she's focused on, and of course, the racial biases therein. Uh, she also covers the thousands of plea bargains that allow our overburdened courts to stay afloat as long as innocent people are still willing to plead guilty to things they haven't done. Her incredible record is uh, beautifully encapsulated in her memoir, Her Honor. My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. It provides amazing insight into everything, all these cases on abortion, gun laws, police misconduct, January 6th. It's a fascinating and gripping memoir. What a pleasure to welcome Judge LaDoris Cordell to the show. Hello. Thank, thank you so much, John. Thank, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. I'll try to not let you down too much because I, I was so delighted to get you. Your book is so inspiring. Before I even begin, let me ask you, what was it that made you want to write a book for all of us that's really not just your story as a, as a trailblazer, but it's really a book that teaches us what a judge really does? Exactly. So I, I, this book would not have been written, but for my parents, um, I the last seven years that I was on the bench, and I don't know why I started to do this, but every Friday I wrote a letter to my parents. And I'm from back east, just outside of Philadelphia. And uh, I'm California, obviously, where I was on the bench. And my parents love to hear the stories about what happens in court. And if you're a trial court judge, no matter what state, um, it's just you never know what's going to happen every day. You just have no idea. People lose their inhibitions in the courtroom and you, you just don't know what's going to happen. And my parents loved hearing these. So I started writing to them every Friday. Why Friday? Friday afternoons, judges generally don't have hearings because you're reviewing files for the next week. So I did this every week for about seven or eight years. Mm -hmm. I retired from the bench. I go back east and visit my parents. And my mother, who was very organized, pulls this box out of our middle room closet. And she said, what do you want me to do with these? So you have to understand, these were not emails. Mm -hmm. These were letters with a postage stamp, you know, you mail. And, and I, I really think we've gotten away from letter writing. I think it's an oh, art yeah. and people love to get letters, right? Uh, and my mother said, what do you want me to do with these? I had not made copies of these letters and she saved them all. So I boxed them up, sent them back here to me. When I got back here to California, it took me a couple of years before I could bring myself to start reading these letters. And that's when I thought, you know, it might be fodder for a book. And then as time went on and I saw the kinds of attacks and the lack of understanding of the judiciary, um, I decided that I wanted to write something that was was educational, 
was entertaining and also energizing. So it's not a book about complaints. Oh, the legal system's horrible. There's some bad stuff in it. Yeah, It is a book that says, yeah, there's bad stuff and, and here's how to fix it. So it's really a combination, as you pointed out. It's a combination memoir about my nearly 20 years on the bench. And it's also a primer mm-hmm. on our legal system. And I was able to combine the two to talk about this legal system to educate everybody. This isn't a book just for lawyers or people in the legal world. Not at all. It's for everyone and anybody who wants to make this legal system better. That's why it's so brilliant. It works so well as the compelling narrative of your life. At the same time, I, you know, I can tell that those letters you wrote to your parents were explaining the logistics and the intricacies of being a judge, things that we don't really get on Law & Order episodes. But what what's amazing is just the weight that must have been on your shoulders when you began. Your your predecessor, the only black male judge to preside on your court, had been removed from the bench for obstruction of justice and conspiracy to commit arson. And 20 years went by before California appointed another black judge. And you were the first African-American female judge in, in Northern California. Again, municipal court in Santa Clara County by Governor Jerry Brown. It's wonderful in the beginning of the book as you describe how really strange it was for you to walk into a municipal courtroom wearing a judicial robe for the first time in 1982. You write, I knew next to nothing about this job. I set forth to mete out justice untrained, untutored, and unnerved. I'm really fascinated by by how having the burden of being the first impacted your view of the job while you were learning the job. It's a level of pressure that most of us will never understand. Right. But there's two things you bring up. The first is most people think, well, if you're going to be a judge, certainly there has to be some sort of training or preparation. There is none. So the only thing that basically the law requires is that you have to have been a lawyer for a certain number of years. So that means if you, John, were a lawyer who loved to do contracts, transactions, so you weren't in the courtroom much, but you decided... Oh, after a few years, I want to be a judge. And let's say you get on the bench and you don't, you've never even been in a courtroom much and you're given a rope and you're now told, okay, you're going to be a judge in family court, or you're going to be a judge who presides over the mental health calendar to decide if people in locked psychiatric units could get, should get out or stay Mm -hmm. in. No training at all. So compare that to other professions. A doctor, would you go uh, (laughs) under to have brain surgery? with someone who's never had any kind of training or specializing in the brain? Of course not. It's amazing. But for judges, we, we just, it's just anybody who, who runs for an open seat because state court judges are all subject to elections, uh, not on the federal system. Federal, you're appointed for life and you can do whatever you want. And the only way to get a federal judge out is by impeachment. That's right. Which rarely happens, right? So, yeah. So there is, first of all, the no training part, which I think is absurd. But then, so we're learning as we're doing. We're learning as we're doing. And the other part you mentioned is about being the first. There are a lot of people in a lot of professions who are the first. The first woman, the first person who's gay, um, the first person of color. And of course there's pressure because the expectation for those who don't want you there. Exactly. They're the people who buy into a stereotype. And so they are expecting you to fail. And then there's the expectation from the communities say, from my communities of color, from women who want you to succeed and hope you will, because if you do not, there's going to be that drought on the bench as it was when the first African-American judge on our court 
was convicted of um, these felonies and was removed from the bench. So the pressures are um, to succeed, and then there's pressure uh, to not fail. People, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's two completely distinct kinds of That's anxieties right. that you have to walk with. And what I, I find fascinating is how judges aren't necessarily like doctors channeled into a particular area of uh, the right. law that they favor. You describe yourself in the book as a judge of all trades. You you rotate it through a broad variety of assignments every few years. How does that work? And, and what type of cases did you discover were the most interesting to you? Right. So there are some judges and we're talking now about the state court and we're talking about trial court judges. And I say that because trial courts are the first, the judges are the first people that people who come into the court see. If it's traffic court, if it's small claims, that's Judge Judy kind of stuff with mm-hmm. no lawyers. If it's criminal cases, you will meet for the first people in black robes are the trial court judges. Um, so um, I did not specialize because there are trial judges who specialize. Like in our court, there was a judge who only did juvenile cases and he became a national figure in in the area of juvenile law. That's not what I wanted. I wanted everything. And so I was one of those judges, and it's not uncommon, who rotated through a number of assignments. And as I describe in the book, the book is by subject matter. So it's juvenile court, delinquency court, and that's juveniles charged with crimes. Then let's see, there's probate where people are fighting over the spoils of dead people, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, good um, times, good times. Exactly. And then there's family court, people divorcing, fighting over kids, fighting over support. I presided in the mental health uh, calendar or cases where you have people that, who want to get out of locked psychiatric units. And guess who decides to let them out? Judges, trial yeah. court judges. So that's there are right. hearings. And so that's just some of what I describe in the book. Uh, so what I found the most, the hardest, and you might be surprised because people say, well, it's got to be, you know, sentencing people. No, not at all. The most, the hardest dis- assignment for me was family court. Yeah. It just burned me out. I was there for three years. I write about it in the book. And it's just everyone who comes into family court is in crisis. Yeah. They're fighting fighting each other. They're fighting over things. They're fighting over kids. And you have this person in a black robe who's going to make decisions about that will determine how these people are going to live the rest of their lives. And when we judges do it, we don't know if we're right or wrong. I mean, sometimes I'd get a case, as I described, where you have parents, they're they're both inadequate. They're both inadequate or they're both just adequate. Hmm. So where do the kids go? And they're fighting, there's no compromise here. So those are the kinds of things, and that that really took its toll on me. Um, the other part that was so very difficult for me was uh, sentencing. I think it's probably one of the most difficult things that judges do, uh, because we use discretion. Yes. We decide, well, what's right? What's the right thing to do here for this person who has been convicted of doing something really bad? Um, and so I write about all of that uh, in the book. Yeah, you talk about how a judge's worst nightmare is handing down a, a lenient sentence to a defendant who then goes out and reoffends. I can only imagine how much that must weigh on you. Yeah. You know what's interesting, though? Judges who are harsh and they hand down sentences of 100 years, people like, yay, uh, good judge. And a judge who shows compassion, who shows mercy, and doesn't hand down a harsh sentence, 
are the ones that generally get attacked. And I, I find know. that very sad because we live in a society that's in, it's just very punitive, particularly yeah. when it comes to the criminal legal system. Uh, so, yes, a judge's nightmare is and worst nightmare is let's decide you decide, oh, OK, I'm going to let this person out on their own recognizance, meaning they don't have to post bail. And that person goes out and kills somebody. Yeah. It's horrible. Did not happen on my watch, fortunately, but it does happen. And uh, it's part of the job. It's part of what we have to deal with. I mean, besides the basic Judeo-Christian concepts of forgiveness and redemption, the fact that mass incarceration costs us $75 billion a year and you're making the choice of, well, do I want this person to be a ward of the state where taxpayers are paying possibly a private corporation for their three a day? Or do I want to give this person a pathway back to working, to being with their children, raising their children, paying into Social Security and being a functioning taxpaying member of society? Exactly. And of course, with the three strikes laws, which are basically mandatory minimum sentencing laws where everyone gets painted with the same brush, we take away the discretion judges have in looking at the individuals. We end up with mass incarceration and those who are incarcerated are mostly poor people and people of color. Um, So, yeah, there are all these kinds of things that are involved in being a trial court judge. And uh, I do talk about all of this stuff very personally. I figured if I'm going to write a story, write a book about the experience, I'm going to be brutally honest. So I don't want anybody to think, oh, she's written a book because she's going to say she's just this wonderful person who's done all the right things. No, (laughs) No. not at all. Not at all. But I do write from my heart and talk about... how hard it is, but yet it is. it was the best job in the world. I, I would not have traded those 20 years for anything. Absolutely. I found it very moving when you write about how you would preside over adoptions or name changes and how fulfilling that was for you. Right. And, you know, the name change chapter, it ends with a letter and it's a letter from a trans woman. And that's let's think about this is back in the, the mid 1990s when it's not today. It's not just not a deal to be a trans person. But back then, it took a lot of courage to come into a courtroom and say, I want to change my name and and do that. Yeah. Uh, and the book ends with a letter I received from a trans woman who came into my court. I write briefly about her case and the entire letter is there. And it's very touching about um, her fears when she came into the court and how it was I handled her case. And uh, there's a little side story on this. When you want to write a book and publish a letter, I didn't know this. That letter, even though it was sent to me, was not mine. Really? So in order for it to be, no, under the laws with regard to writing books and using letters from others, even though it was sent to me, I was told it was not mine. It was hers. So in order to have that letter in the book, I had to get her permission. Well, I hadn't had any contact with her for more than 30 years, 40 years. So I had to find her, which I did. Mercy. Thank God for the internet. Yeah. And then uh, we had a conversation. She remembered me. And then she did give me permission to put the letter in. And if you notice in the letter, her last name is redacted because she's still having issues with people interacting with people and how they receive her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she did have one condition, though. She said, you can run the write the letter, publish the letter in the book, but- Here's a condition. You have to give me a copy of your book and sign it. So I did meet with her, and that's exactly what happened Some almost 40 years later. It just seems so moving, the fact that you got to help people have new names and new kids. And for all the agonies and frustrations and uncertainties of the job, there were the really deeply rewarding sides to it. 
Absolutely. You know, most of being a trial court judge for me was the hard stuff, the sentencing and all, but the the stuff that just made me feel good when I drove home from work each day, we're doing adoptions, bringing families together, making families larger, and also name changes where everyone, everyone wins wins. And the only thing a judge has to do in a name change is make sure the person is not changing a name to commit a fraud of yes. any kind. And that's it. They're very brief hearings. And then people leave happy. They they have their new identities for whatever reasons. And I write about that in the book. Some of them make still make me chuckle about um, the things people said when they came into court. And so, and you'll notice I have the names of people actually in the book. I don't, I don't, change names. Only very rarely did I do that in the book because these were public hearings. Yeah. And because in these letters to my parents, I wrote the names of these folks. I would never have remembered any of them it's but amazing. for the letters. It was like you were keeping a detailed journal of your experiences yes. and your mom saved them for all these years. That's what I love the yes. most about this story. Bless her. I mean, both of my parents, they're no longer with us. My mother was uh, died most recently in 2020, so I'm they so never sorry. got a chance to read the book. So the book is indeed dedicated to them. I want to talk to you about this phrase that has become so polarizing in our culture, judicial activism or Uh, activist judges. You know, I always think like uh, I used to tell a joke, what's an activist judge, daddy? Oh, that's any judge who does something daddy doesn't like. And it sort of seems (laughs) like both uh, of our wonderful political sides are willing to throw that term around when a judge commits the sin of a ruling that we just don't like. And throughout the book, you, you talk about how important it is to have judicial activism in a free society, the, the implementation of change itself to improve the legal system. I'm curious, why was it important for you to include that? And, and how hard was it for you to be criticized in the press and called soft on crime and, and never be able to speak out in your own defense? Right. So you've raised so many issues here. So let me start first with activist judge. Um, It's generally a pejorative. It's always been a negative. It's a judge who's rogue, who's an outlier. Um, And my view, I call myself an activist judge, which is quite the opposite. I believe that anyone who wears a black robe should spend all of their time, one, deciding cases, doing what's right, and doing things to make the system work better. There are so many judges who do not do that at all. Correct. They see it as a job, they go to work, they go home, they go play golf. I mean, that's it. So my my purpose on being the bench was to indeed be an activist judge by, okay, what things need to be changed here and how can I make that happen? And judges are in a wonderful position to be able to do that. We sit at the helm of a legal system. I write in the book about my attempts and sometimes successful, sometimes not, to make the system better. And in each instance, the system pushed back, meaning there were good old boy judges who didn't want change. And if you look at every institution in this country, if it's legal, educational, if it's business, systems do not want change. People like predictability. Mm -hmm. They want things to say the same, even if they could be made better. And that's certainly true of the legal system. So one in one chapter, I write about what happened to me after I was hit by a drunk driver. That's what I was going to ask about. It's amazing. Please. Right. So I was hit by a drunk driver leaving the court, going home. And uh, I was my back was injured. I'm still suffering with the problem today. And I was off work for eight or nine weeks. I go back and I'm thinking, wait a minute. The, the person who hit me got a slap on the wrist and is back out on the road. Um, so I said, all right, how can we make the system better? I became the first judge in California and maybe in the nation to require convicted drunk drivers in my courtroom to install breath 
devices on their cars. And um, and it's called ignition devices. And uh, they're attached to the ignition system, require you to inspect the size of a cell phone. You have to blow into the device. And if you have alcohol in your system, the car will not start. So it basically disables a 2,000 pound weapon, which is what it becomes if you're under the influence. Mm-hmm. And And the fact that I did it in my own courtroom caused such a stir on our court because judges are like, well, wait a minute, what if this catches on? I don't want to do that. Uh, And it ended up being a real interesting adventure, a lot of challenges. And uh, for those who read the book, just as a teaser, it involved the governor of California. Um, I got a lot of pushback, but then there was a lot of support. But let me just say today, these ignition breath devices are now either required or permitted in every state in the country. So it's it's a testament to how one person can change, can make change, uh, not without a lot of pushback and a of lot course. of struggle, but it can happen. And hopefully it inspires, the, this chapter would inspire judges to say, to look around, see what you can do to make the system better. And again, when you when you began ordering defendants to install these devices, you were the first judge in California to do that. That's correct. And I didn't know it at the time. I did not know it. That's not how I operate. Uh, I, I later learned that, and that was basically because of the media who started looking into all of this. Um, and it it worked. I mean, there's there are studies that show that people who use these devices are less likely to come back into the system. In other words, to drink and drive again. Yep. Um, so you know, it, it's a lesson in how to make change, but it's also a lesson in how hard change can be. But that's what I love about the book, because you know firsthand all the problems in our legal system and how prejudice has just permeated the legal system. And it's, it, you know, discrimination is baked in. But one thing that comes ringing true in every chapter is knowing all this, you still believe so passionately in the system. I mean, from ending school segregation to uh, marriage equality. I mean, it is right. all about legal professionals who have made this imperfect system gradually, incrementally better and more just. Yeah, I mean, we, we do have a long way to go. And I don't want people, your listeners, to think that I'm a Pollyannish and like, oh, everything's wonderful in the system. No, it is not. But what I can say about our legal system is that it is based on principles that are the best in the world. Yes, It's based on principles like uh, everyone um, has a right to... Uh, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Everyone has a right to a speedy trial, to a jury trial, to due process, to against self-incrimination. The problem is with the implementation of these principles. These principles were created by propertyed white men who did not contemplate that these principles should apply to women, to poor people, Thank you. or to people of color. Correct. So our challenge today, those within the legal profession and those not in the legal profession, but are affected by what happens in our legal system, our challenge is to make these principles apply fairly and equally to everyone. And one of the greatest barriers is racism, is this 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 structural racism within, well, just about every kind of uh, avenue you can see in America, but certainly in our legal system. And that's, so I acknowledge that, 
And yet I am ever hopeful because there are many good people, good judges, people like you, John, who care about these issues. And my book is like, okay, if you care about it, read it, understand how the system works. Now look at what kinds of things you can do. So I have a chapter in the book called The Fix, where I say, okay, here are at least 10 things that we ought to think about, talk about, Mm -hmm. and there's ways to make them better. That's what I love. I I mean, speaking of those white landowning men who uh, made these rules all by themselves. Can I ask you about guns briefly, Judge? Because I, I love how you talk about when the Second Amendment was written and how different firearms looked during that time. There, I, I don't know how it has come to pass in this country, how there's been such a misinterpretation of the Second Amendment. It has been totally misconstrued and most recently by the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, I mean, if you look at what was intended by the Second Amendment, this was about militias to protect um, uh, to protect democracy. This wasn't about, oh, I get to carry my AR-15 or walk around with a gun on my hip. I was recently spent some time in Mississippi and I'm sitting in a restaurant. It's very nice. Fine. And this big guy walks in with a with a gun on his hip. And I felt, what? Why do you need a gun? Why do you need? And yet it's, you know, you'll hear well, that's my right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's Second Amendment. No, it's not. Not not at all. Um, we're just not in a good place in this country. And if you look, of course, at the mass shootings, we're just not in a good place. And I blame quite a bit of this on the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. And when I say the court, I mean the conservatives on the court. So I'm not painting all of those nine justices no, with one brush. And uh, shame on them. And uh, they've really let loose... You know, uh, the, these massacres that are happening, I say shame on them because I really look to them to blame them as I do on voter suppression. And as I do recently with the fact of um, the their ruling on overturning Roe v. Wade. You know, Your Honor, I'm going to have to beg you to come back on the show because there's so much I didn't even get to ask you about. But but before we before I, I bid my farewell, and I do hope we can get you back because this book is just so wonderful and powerful, but what would be the most important reform that you hope might be made in our judicial system? What what reforms okay. do we need the most? Yeah, I'll just pick one because there, there are a number of them in the chapter of the fix, but there's yeah. one that is key to keeping our judiciary independent. And by independent, I mean we want judges to focus on what's going on in the courtroom and not listening to the mob to decide to to make their rulings and make their decisions. So I have one uh, recommendation, and that's with respect to the recall of judges. Um, Right now, judges can be recalled just like any politician can be. And my argument is that judges are not politicians. Politicians make promises to constituents to do things. That's what they do. Judges, the only promise we can make is to uphold the law. So recalls, I'm not saying abolish recalls of judges. What I'm saying is let's have them. But a judge should never be recalled for making a lawful decision, no matter how controversial. There are other ways to deal with a judge who's rogue, who's just out there and behaving badly. Mm -hmm. That judge should be recalled, but not for making a lawful decision, even if it's controversial. There's a way to fix it. And I talk about that in the fix. It is doable in our lifetime. 
Judge Ladoris Hazard Cordell is the author of Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. It is an essential read. It is so informative and yet so gripping and beautifully written. Judge, I hope we can get you back and talk about Citizens United sometime. Thank you so much for being I so generous. I would love to. Thank, Thank you. you so much, John. I what, appreciate it. What a pleasure. Thank you. Again, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It makes a great book, and it's a fascinating read. Thank you so much, Judge. We got to hit a quick break, folks. We'll be right back and having open phones all the way till midnight on the East Coast, 9 p.m. on the Pacific. Our number is 866-997-GRIT. We got a lot to get to, and we want to know how you're handling all of it. Don't go away. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let me go, if I may, to uh, Mac. Is it going to work now, Thea? Guys, Thea came into my studio and messed around, and she said it's going to work. So now if it doesn't work, she's going to blame me again. Mac in North Carolina. Hello. Hey, John. Hi. Uh, can you hear me this time? Yes, it's correct me night, so please. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, respectfully, of course. I was listening to you uh, this morning on uh, Stephanie Miller's show. I'm sorry. I was I was younger and going through some stuff back then, and I was abusing a lot of substances. I was drinking and a lot of pills. It was. I've come a long way since this morning on Stephanie, but go ahead. Well, I appreciate that you've made some progress then. That's the first step to uh, self-realization. I agree. Uh, you were talking about uh, Alex Jones and the child porn. Yes, the from, which was 2019, I know. Yeah, it was 2019. That's just what I wanted to say. I just wanted to I know. It wasn't new, and, uh, and and I had forgotten the Alex Jones child porn story because it just kind of blends in with so everything much else. crap that we've for- all forgotten so much that we can't uh, hardly keep it in our heads. But yes. I, I just wanted to uh, make sure that... And so I know you're. Uh, yes, very- that that wasn't why his week got worse. His week got worse because no, he's got to pay forty two million dollars. Uh, the child porn thing, and I want to personally apologize to Alex Jones for acting no, like uh, the revelation that he had child porn was a news story. The revelation that he had child porn and he blamed it on malware to make him look bad. It's actually three years old. My apologies to Alex Jones for getting the time wrong on your child porn scandal. There, I think I've said and the then- record right. The other thing, uh, not political, since you were talking about somebody talking with somebody about Boardwalk Empire, I started watching The Sandman on Netflix today, which just dropped today, and I just wanted to recommend it to you if yeah. uh, you have time. Uh, very good show, lots of great actors. Why did it take time. 30 years to adapt that book? Uh, from what I understand, Neil Gaiman was personally fighting against most of the adaptations because he just didn't like the way that they took the story. But after the, I think after the audiobook did so well on Audible, I think he just finally uh, 
That's fascinating. Found one that worked. Fascinating. All right, I'll put it in my queue. I spent last week watching the, the first four episodes of Andor, uh, uh, the Star Wars series, and I'm not allowed to say anything about it or Disney will kill me. Thank you very That's much for the call, Mac. I appreciate it. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's go to Bruce and Callie, who also wants to yell at me. I'm going to let you guys unload on me for all the sins I've committed all week. And Bruce, I think I know what you're on about. Welcome. Well, yeah, but can I just say something before I get to that? Yeah, go ahead. Did you hear on Tucker Carlson's show yesterday going after Jon Stewart? And did you see Jon Stewart's tweet? No, what did can he I say? read it? Yeah, read it, please. Okay, here. He says, friends, tonight I am sad. It's Tucker Carlson, well, you know, he, he, he said that Jon Stewart was short and disheveled and... Okay, so to give you a little backdrop. Okay, so John Stewart replies, Friends, tonight I am sad. At Tucker Carlson believes me too short to date. And yet somehow, <laughs> miraculously, I remain tall enough to not know what Victor Orban's ass tastes like. <laughs> oh! Is it goulash? Is it goulash, Tucky? Seems like it would be goulash. So wow. I, that's a great... <laughs> what a piece of shit that we know Tucker Carlson. And you know what? Tucker Carlson just trying to attack Jon Stewart 22 years after Jon Stewart set him on fire on Crossfire. Oh, it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I'm with you. But now, you know what I'm calling you about. The last two callers of the night. Last oh, my. Night. You yes. Know? What? You don't I, like, you don't that, like that, that I made the right-wing guys wait on hold for two and a half hours before <laughs> taking their call? I thought you'd appreciate that. Okay. Yeah. Well, I like it that I have well over a decade of trucker Steve. I know. Used to be known as. I let me know. just let me just give you a rundown. But, but Kendall, you, you Kendall, the ra- Kendall, the racist, well, waited on hold for like three hours last night before I gave him thirty seconds at the end of the show. So that's a bit of panache on my part. But go ahead. You don't like that I was nice to trucker Steve. Yeah. Well, do you want me to give you the? I mean, the list. Like I said. Yeah. No. Go. Oh, no. And, sure. It's your show. Tell for, me, please. Voted for Trump. Voted for Trump in 2020. Yeah, the second time. Uh, he didn't vote for Trump wait, the first yeah. time. Went the second time. I know. I know you know this. I've already yelled he, uh, at him for all this. Go ahead. I know you have. I know. But he believes in unlimited Second Amendment rights. You mm-hmm. know, AR-15s, yeah. uh, wow. unlimited <laughs> oh, magazines. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't believe... Doesn't believe in women's reproductive rights. Um, and, I think uh, I think I'm making progress on Trucker Steve on abortion yeah, I, rights. Yeah, a little I, bit. I moved the needle last night. I'm sorry, but I did. Go on. And this is a classic. And I can't remember. I've heard him say it more than once. He honestly believes if you own a business, 
you should be able to refuse service to anybody. I know. I don't know if he's. I yeah. I yeah. mean, those four. I mean, he's just as despicable. And the sad thing is, a lot of I'm people believe that. Prof- by the way, I'm. I'm in the same profession as those two douchebags. Uh, you know, I'm a trucker. Thank you for your service. But, uh, and I thank Steve. Yeah, you're welcome. Listen, but here's what I'll say about Steve. Steve is wrong about a lot of things. But we have wrong two... Wrong about just about... Okay. Okay, but we have two kinds of right-wing folk now, right? We have the ones who are wrong about almost everything. And then we have the evil, batshit, crazy, mean motherfuckers. Okay? Now, now there's... there's the, We all have nice conservative relatives or friends oh, yeah. or and we 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 don't we don't like them but we love them you know what i'm saying and they're wrong about everything they've been proven wrong about everything sometimes they evolve a bit but then there's this other kind of right winger that has come out in the last 10 years since tea party since clinton since gingrich they're angrier they're louder they're dumber they're meaner i call them the illiterati and uh there's two mm-hmm. kinds there's the ones who are wrong about everything and the ones who are wrong about everything and hate everything and so i'm sorry it's it's very very different there's different gradations and steve is a guy who's just wrong about everything and we love him for it oh yeah oh one other thing uh now i don't he didn't come out directly and say but when you brought up i think arizona he basically said he if he lived in arizona i'm 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 assuming this because he would vote. He would vote for Blake Madrid because he doesn't want Democratic control. So yeah. he would vote for a racist yeah. piece of shit like Blake Madrid. So that I, I yeah. you know, I've I had know. it with you, and I, I have, these, I have, I have plenty of friends that are like this, and I don't talk. I mean, and and over the years, I spent a lot of time explaining to Steve that you you can be a racist and not be a bigot, even if you have no hatred in your heart. You can still be a fucking racist because you're reinforcing stereotypes and making things worse. And Peter Thiel is going to have to answer for supporting this guy and bankrolling him to the tune of ten million plus, who actually talks about white replacement theory, who says we have a gun problem because of black people committing violence. I mean, that's the guy that the astronaut is going to run against. And I say, let the right wing own it. Let them own it. Oh yeah, yeah. Yes, I hope. I hope the Democrats pour lots of money into so that. that. So that was Steve. Yeah. Steve. Steve's a Republican who's yeah. just wrong about most things. Kendall is a fucking whack job, illiterati racist. Yeah. And um, oh, and yeah. I, I enjoy yeah. him too. He hates us, but he'll wait on hold. And if Kendall's on hold, I'll let him listen to the show, and we'll fill his head with as many facts and empathetic moments of love as we can. And. Uh, on that same subject of Kendall, uh, <laughs> Dean doesn't even take Kendall doesn't even take it. I mean, uh, Dean won't even take his calls anymore. Uh, well, there you go. Thank yeah. you so much, Bruce. <laughs>